On this episode of AvTalk, we welcome Ops Group founder Mark Z to discuss Notums and why his group is trying to change how they're written. We also get updates on the Ural Airlines A321 that landed in a cornfield, the 737 MAX timeline, and Qantas is set to conduct a trio of Project Sunrise test flights. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How are you? Hello, Jason. I'm doing well. The weather has turned. It's finally not a swamp anymore. It's nice outside. The windows are open. Not right now because we're recording, but they were open before and I'm looking forward to to the coming fall. Has the departure line at O'Hare quieted down since uh, a couple days ago? No, there are still CRJ200s in line mm. from from days ago. They'll probably just be scrapped right there on the taxiway. I mean, it's happened before. Hmm. It could happen again. It could happen again. Yeah, that, that was a rough day of flying because the storms came at just the right time to cause the most the most delay. If only O'Hare had 37 runways which to manage its traffic with, if, if only. We're working on it. We're working on it. We'll have uh, 36 by next fall, and hmm. then uh, 37th, I think, will open. Well, we, we've been having a lot of that here in New York, too, at Newark, especially in JFK. We, we have these annoying pop-up thunderstorms that happen just about 5 o'clock on the dot which, as you mentioned, is like when all of the airplanes want to go somewhere else. And that just – it just ruins everything. The weather knows. The weather is on to us. It's like you can't start the storms at 2 o'clock when there's like – you're after the 12 o'clock noon flight bank, but before the evening one where no one cares. Come on. And people are still at work so they don't get wet on the way home. No, it, it's, it's, it's all co- closely coordinated. This has quickly become a weather conspiracy podcast. Weird. Let's, let's not go where I think this could go. Let's go back to the airplanes. Yeah. Uh, so as news is wont to do, an important aviation event occurred almost immediately after we recorded the last episode of the podcast. So if you pay attention to trends at all, there's this annoying thing that as soon as we hit the stop button in our respective recording apps – Something happens. It's just like any time John Ostrauer decides to go on vacation, which the last time he announced a vacation, we made it zero minutes before major news was broken. Same thing happens to us, but every other week. Yeah, it's something that we don't like setting our watch by because in this case, it was the Ural Airlines A321 that uh, suffered dual engine failure thanks to a flock of birds and set down in a cornfield. So we realize that you have already heard this news two weeks ago and have probably already forgotten about it since then, but the Ural 321 suffered a, a case of the sullies, I guess. A <laughs> case of the sullies. But these things are, it's supposed to be, the odds of it are supposed to be damn near impossible. And here we go, two times within uh, almost a decade, or a little over a decade, where uh, an Airbus aircraft hit a flock of birds and had dual engine flame out at low altitude just after departure. But thankfully, both times, miraculously, everyone was mostly okay. Yeah, yeah. The, no significant injuries. 
in the the Ural forced landing, hard landing. Yeah, uh, they called it a hard landing. A cornfield Come on, it's arrival. not a hard landing. That's that's ridiculous. But the news this week, you know, if anybody you know is is has kind of forgotten about things and and whatnot, the news this week is that they announced that they're going to scrap the aircraft in in place, basically, and it will not be repaired. It will not be anything like that. It will just be turned into the beverage container of your choice. Exactly. So perhaps to hold some corn. Yeah, and it was it's quite something to see the difference ten years makes. When when the US Airways three twenty went down in the Hudson, it was kind of actually a defining moment of all things for Twitter. It, the news broke there. One of the the first pictures anywhere of the world was tweeted out, I think using TwitPic before Twitter even hosted natively photos. And that really sparked people's interest in Twitter. And these days in Russia, um, there's multiple video angles inside the aircraft, outside the aircraft, drone footage of it in the middle of a cornfield, uh, quite the bit of progress in 10 years. Yeah. I mean, it, almost immediately social media lit up with this happened. Here are photos, videos, takes on a life of its own before you can even really... Uh really figure out what what's happening and where. But that is the update on that particular airframe. And we will uh, then shift to another, which I think we can call an actual hard landing. And this was the Delta flight last week um, that uh, that crunched in uh, Ponta Delgada, was in, uh, in inbound from New York. And the images that I've seen of the aircraft and, and and Jason's seen it, and perhaps you all listening have seen as well. It's a 757 with a big crinkle in the middle. Yeah. We don't really know what happened there or why. Well, we know what happened. We don't know why or, or the how of what happened there. But the speculation has been rampant on will they fix it? Will they scrap it? And apparently Delta has amassed an AN-124 and some Boeing technical teams, or maybe not Boeing technical teams, but Delta Tech Ops to get out there and do Something. I am still of the opinion that they're going to go out there and scrap the thing on site, and the AN124 is actually there to bring components back, like the engines and APU or whatever else they can set scavenge mm. from it. I think that's what's going to happen. I don't think they're going to fix it on site because doing that out there has got to be difficult. It has to be one of the worst places in the entire Delta global network to have that happen. I'm thinking maybe Akragana. Or Dakar, Senegal might be worse for logistics, but where it happened, it, it actually might be the worst location for that. Your theory is an interesting one. I guess it would be very interesting to see if they do fix it, what their reasoning behind fixing it ends up being. Right. It's not a new aircraft. I mean, it's a 7.5, and I, I believe it's one of the, the older frames that Delta has. It, this was acquired from Northwest, I believe, and actually used to do interport missions out of uh, Narita back when Delta had a significantly sized hub out there. I'd be surprised if they fixed this aircraft up, just like I would be surprised if United fixed up its 7.5 that had a hard landing at Newark a few weeks ago. Well, I, I guess we'll if they're not going to fix it and they are going to to load it up and and take it away. That, that I guess we'll know sooner rather than later. Yep, that's my theory. We'll see what happens. All I am right. basing I'm, that I'm gonna, off of I'm going to hold you to that. Nothing whatsoever, though. 
I'm going to hold you to that, and we'll we'll come back in a future episode, and, and we'll see how just how wrong you are. We'll see. So speaking of, of John Ostrar not being able to announce any vacations, Ugh. John Ostrar tweeted out that he was going on vacation, and not one minute later- Literally not even a minute, zero not, minutes later. Zero minutes later, Qantas announced that they were going to conduct three research flights- for their upcoming Project Sunrise, which is the nonstop connection between London and Sydney and New York and Sydney. So mostly a PR stunt because they know the aircraft can do it. There's, there's no question about it. And if they want to test uh, passenger reaction or, or passenger health on board, there are ways to do that on the ground with with pressure chambers. Um, this is something Airbus, Boeing, and the others all, all do. I, I don't know what they hope to gain from this, but I am all in support of it. Well, obviously, publicity. I mean, Mission there are accomplished. a lot of people talking about it, us included. But I, I think it's rather interesting. I mean, for one, it'll be the first nonstop commercial flight between New York and Sydney. Well, it's um, not a the, commercial the, flight. A commercial airplane flight. There you go. Setting aside any other particular types of aircraft that have flown there. And uh, we're remembering it's not the first commercial airplane flight between London and Sydney because when Qantas took delivery of their first 747-400, they loaded the thing with fuel and took off from London and arrived in Sydney. So they, they've done that nonstop before. Um, so that, that won't be the first one. But it'll be interesting to see what ends up ha- – they're going to have 40 people on the flights. They're going to be using basically fuel-laden 787-9s, brand new from the factory. They're going to toss 40 people on, including the crew. So it's – I don't know how many that leaves beyond the pilots. And they're going to strap them into various things to measure their health and wellness you know, rhythms and pressures and all sorts of things. So that I think will be the interesting part to see how that affects them. Yeah. I, I just don't really know what the end game here is. If they find at the end of this fight, oh, it was actually torture and it's unsustainable. Do they do they not do it? I don't know what they, they hope to accomplish. It'll be interesting to see their recommendations because there's only so much you can do on board the aircraft. Yes, is higher cabin pressure and maybe higher humidity if they take that option on the interiors package. But what do you do if you if your research proves that these flights are, are unhealthy? But then the question becomes is which aircraft do you choose for the eventual they're not going to be using seven eight sevens. They don't have the range. I mean the seven eight seven nine would be the one to use, but it doesn't have the range with commercially viable Passenger load or, right. or cargo or anything like that. So Boeing's putting up the a variant of the triple seven X, and Airbus is putting up an A three fifty variant. Which then do you choose? And they said that they've hoped they're hoping to make a decision on the In totality December. of the program by December. And so yeah, I have some interesting experience with this. I think one of the longest flights I've ever been on was actually a delivery flight of a Qatar seven eight seven dash eight at the time from uh, Painfield to Doha, that is a 7,380-mile flight. And it, I don't remember exactly how long it took, but I was in business class. And even at the end of that flight, I was scratching at the 
electrochromatic windows to get off that plane because I, I just I needed off the aircraft and I didn't want another minute on board. It was just it was a lot of flying. And that was also an air a flight that had about 40 passengers on board. There was no one in the economy. The JFK to Sydney flight is 9,950 miles, two, more than 2,000 miles more than what may have been my longest ever flight. I could not imagine doing an added 2,000 miles on top of the delivery flight I was on, and I was in business class. It will be very interesting to see how they structure the economy class on those flights. Yeah, and and all this all this nonsense you've seen about lower deck uh, in the cabin in the um, the luggage hold down below of gyms and movie rooms and exercise areas, just get it out of your head. That's not going to happen. It, it's not a thing. They'll put like an oversized galley with a couple of seat, like one of those business class style lounges, and they'll call it a wellness area, and they'll have some like yoga mat or something out, and no one will use it. And and that'll be it. It'll look like the uh, the prayer space on a on a long haul Saudi aircraft. Like it's there. It's just a blank space instead of prayer. You can just stretch out or whatever. It, it's man, almost a ten thousand mile flight, and that does not even include the time you're going to be spending on the ground at JFK because those five p.m. thunderstorms are going to pop up, and it's going to take you an hour and a half to get to the runway. This sounds exciting. And having said all of that. Of course, Jason and I want to be on these flights. Oh, Ian, you, you sent an email to Qantas <laughs> nanoseconds after this announcement went out. I, I, I said, where, how, where do we sign up? If it has Wi-Fi, we will live stream as best we can. As best we can. No, because I, I think I'm really interested not in even the outcome of these research flights, but what they're actually going to do. Yeah. I, I <laughs> and and why and what they hope to gain out of this that that's my interest. In it, it. It's just these flights keep getting incrementally longer. Let's see, JFK to Sydney, I said, is nine thousand nine hundred fifty miles. The the one of the longest flights today that we actually have is Newark to Sydney, which is nine thousand five hundred thirty four miles. Um, Newark Singapore, right? New, yes, sorry, Newark sorry. to Singapore. So their JFK Sydney flight is a couple hundred miles longer, which is all. All in all, is not all that much more. But Singapore does not have economy on those flights at all. It's premium economy and business only. We shall see. Yep. So a weird thing happened um, last week. In started in Turkey, ended in Prague. A Smartwings seven three seven eight hundred suffered an engine failure about thirty minutes after takeoff from Samos, which is in Turkey, and they were bound for Prague. And so they followed the engine out protocols of descending into into correct airspace and then continued to Prague. Just kept going on for a couple Just hours, like uh, no big deal. And that becomes an interesting thing because they didn't divert anywhere in between it's not and like they, they didn't have anywhere to go. They and just didn't. Yeah. This was not an overwater flight. This was an over most of Southeast Europe flight. So it becomes very interesting to me. Details are still a little sketchy on exactly why they didn't divert and, and why they felt they didn't need to. I'm still looking for a little bit more of a satisfactory explanation from 
a more official source to learn a little bit more. But this is a very interesting thing to me because you would think that with one engine, you would want to go to the nearest suitable airfield. Yes, because as a reminder, the 737 nearest airport only has two engines. Two engines, yes. And, and I'm not saying nearest airport because this is something we, we, we talk about a lot. You know, nearest if div- something happens. diversion airport. Yeah, exactly. Where, where you've got the ability to deal with the issue, deal with your passengers, make sure that the aircraft is secured and, and all that things. So nearest suitable airfield, not necessarily the, the absolute closest airport. Definitely reminds me, what was it, back in the 80s or 90s of that BA 747 where they lost one of their four engines, I think, departing LA and just kept on going all the way to to Europe on three engines. And sure, it could, but should you? They got a talking to, but they technically didn't do anything wrong. Well, there you go. And so so we'll find out who gets a talking to and, and who did anything wrong, if anything. Hopefully, when we, we find out more about this, there, there's been an, an incident inquiry opened by the Czech authorities. So that'll be an interesting thing to see if there's ever a, a report published. In Beijing this week, an A330 turned into a former A330. Oh, rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Pieces. And, uh, pe- well, it's, it's still in one piece mostly. For now. With, with a couple of holes in it. I'm sure it will be towed off somewhere and, and chopped up. There was a fire in much of the aircraft, but the all signs are pointing to an oxygen system igniting improperly and uh, and causing a fire while the aircraft was boarding. So passengers who were boarding got off the plane and, and no one was injured, but the plane's definitely a convertible now. Yeah, and, extra crispy. Much like submarines with screen doors, um, that doesn't really work all that well. No. So uh, that is one less A330 out in the world. Shall we do our obligatory 737 MAX update? We kind of actually have news this time, sort of. We kind of actually sort of do have news. Kind of. Kind of. So the Boeing is now targeting the final software update test flight to get the FAA to sign off for October. So that's seems to be kind of that the window seems to be narrowing into October. Yes, so the um, the fourth quarter maybe by end of the year date to get these things flying again is uh seems plausible at this rate. It does. It it does seem plausible. And and there's been, you know, we talked about in in a previous episode with the test flights with the 737 MAX 7 aircraft by Boeing to to kind of move things along there. So hopefully this is the, the time frame that things stick to. In the meantime, United is moving its fleet. They have 14 MAX 9 aircraft. They're moving all of them to Phoenix Goodyear Airport. They had, as of this morning, nine of them were at Houston Hobby Airport, a few at IAH, and then two over in Los Angeles at LAX, and they'll all be consolidated into Phoenix so that when the time comes, they can all be patched together, much like Southwest has consolidated all of theirs in Victorville. And they came out this week and said that they're going to keep the MAX name after the grounding is lifted, which is a an interesting thing considering all we had talked about after the Paris Air Show about the, the MAX name going away. Yeah, and then Ryanair removing the MAX titles off the nose of its aircraft. And Goal removing 
the Mac's name off of their website. So it'll be interesting to to see if there's any kind of brand standardization there or if it's just going to be up to individual airlines, how they want to market it. I mean, again, the Max is just a, a marketing name. There's no official – the airplane is not officially called the 737 Max. Right. It's just officially as far as you know, flying is concerned, it's the 737-8-9-10 eventually-7. There, there's no Max in the official title. Yeah, I think airlines would be smart to use that official naming, just call it a 737-8 or dash 9 or 10 or 7 for the four of those that'll ever be made. It just seems so logical to me. Drop the Max branding. It's it's dead. It's a terrible brand name at this point, but just stick to the facts. Call it a dash 8. No one will know. So Southwest says they're sticking with it. We'll see if that lasts and if it does, how long. Jason, if you're flying on British Airways in the next couple of weeks, is that a good idea? It is, unless you are flying on September 9th, 10th, or the 27th. Then it's a really bad idea. Okay. Tell me why. Well, BA and its pilots union, BALPA, I guess it's pronounced, uh, they're having a little contract dispute. And they have officially notified BA that they will strike on those dates again, September 9th, 10th, and 27th. BA, quote, we are extremely sorry that after many months of negotiations based on a very fair offer, Balpa has decided on this reckless course of action. Them some harsh words. Just as a note, BA City Fire, Sun Air, and Com Air flights down in South Africa are not impacted. But funny, BA accidentally sent out flight cancellation notifications to everyone for those affected dates and then retracted them because it they, I guess they haven't actually processed the which flights will be operating or canceled, so stay tuned, I guess. <laughs> stay tuned to, to both this podcast for updates, but also apparently if you are flying, check your email or don't check your yeah, email. Yeah, don't check your the email. the case may be. Yeah, check uh, directly on BA.com if you have a BA flight on one of those days, or I'd say even before or after those days, because if you are flying, let's say, JFK to London – there might not be aircraft positioned here the day before the day after to take you where you need to go. So look out for that. Very strange emails. But an unfortunate situation as far as the, the strike is, is concerned. You read BA's email. The, the union had a similar sentiment. So things seem to be going well. Yeah, oh, yeah, totally. BA did make two other points saying they're exploring options to supplement their fleet by using aircraft and crew from other airlines, also known as wet leasing, and also working with partner airlines to schedule larger aircraft to take the maximum number of customers possible. So I guess in uh, cases like the joint venture over the Atlantic, if American happened to be operating a 7.5 somewhere to London, I don't think that actually happens. Maybe they could squeeze in a 7.6 or something like that to, to take on some affected passengers. One would assume that it would be possible maybe to get other IAG aircraft in as well, but, possible. but I, I, I don't know. But the wet lease market is not a good place to be shopping last minute because of the, the max grounding. Pretty much every aircraft that can fly is flying right now. Well, I mean, BA is no stranger to, to wet leasing when they need aircraft. So, I mean, that it's they've called on the, the Qatari fleet in a few moments uh, in recent history. So, I, I wonder if that'll they'll re-up that again. Paging Air Belgium. There you go. But they're probably already flying. Oh, right. Actually, they're already flying for BA. That's what I'm saying. 
Well, in any case, if you're flying on those dates, the 9th, the 10th, or the 27th of September, uh, if you're flying BA, uh, be on the lookout. And, and like Jason says, the the days before and after are also a, a good a, a good thing to to check as well. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back for a chat with Mark Z, who is the founder of Ops Group, and we are going to learn about notums. Cool. Welcome back. We are joined by Mark Z, the founder of Ops Group, a village, as Mark describes it, of over 5,500 flight operations professionals, pilots, controllers, dispatchers, ground folks, anyone who who has an interest in, in making sure that aviation runs well. And we're here to have a an exciting conversation about NOTAMs. And so, Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Ian. I love how counterintuitive that sounds, an exciting conversation <laughs> about NOTAMs. Well, we'll give it a shot. I think we can do well, it. Well, I am excited to talk to you about this because it's one of those things in aviation where, where once you kind of start to sort of understand them, you cross that Rubicon. I feel like it's one of the, the aviation rites of passage, yeah, like trying a, to understand what one of those is saying. Exactly. A badge of honor, as it were. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I, so I don't think let's... anyone that's not in the airline or aviation industry is going to look at these things and have any idea what is they're trying to convey. And so let's back up and start at the beginning. Mark, please let us know what is a notum or notam question, or, or however you want to pronounce it. How do yeah. we even pronounce the thing? No TAM. Some people say not TAMs and different things, but no TAM. And, you know, even without the acronym and what it means, it's a quick and short message to a pilot to tell them that something is different on their route today. That could be en route, it could be at the departure, the destination, the alternate airport. It's just a heads up. It means notice to airmen. That terminology itself indicates how stuck in the past it is, but it's simply a message to the pilot. Now, you said quick and easy, I think. Maybe you use different words, but I feel like that might not be the case in reality. What are the current feelings on, on these NOTAMs? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think to lead into it, it's it's interesting how it unites the pilot community worldwide. It doesn't matter if you're you know spraying crops in Papua New Guinea or, or flying at the line with United Airlines. Every pilot in the world agrees that there is a big problem with the NOTAM system. And the fact that it should be a quick and short message to tell them something is, is part of the problem. It's not. It's often long-winded. The language that's used in it is often confusing and legalese and overly verbose. It's rarely clear and obvious as to what it means. And there are far too many of them in a briefing package. So let's go over a little bit about what could be in these NOTAMs. And for an example, I picked up on the FAA side, I, I looked up JFK here in New York. There are currently 90 NOTAMs issued for JFK. And they, it seems like they range for anything between um, taxiways closed, parts of taxiways closed. Um, in this case, there are multiple runways closed, but you wouldn't know that at the top. You would think that would be one of the first things they said. But if you want to know that runway four right, 22 left is closed, you got to look at the seventh line. All sorts of cranes operating, there are birds, the localizers out of service. What do you typically see besides these kind of mundane things in a notum? Not that those are actually mundane. Those are very important. 
Exactly. Some of those are very important. So the critical stuff that you might expect to see is uh, the runway is closed, so you've got to use a different one. The airport is closed. That's kind of a big deal. Maybe the runway is shorter than it normally is. Those are some of the critical things, but there are also a whole lot of non-critical things. And typically, we get huge amounts of information about very small obstacles, often very far away from the airport, grass cutting times, what animals are around the airport, what's going on with the birds. Did you say what animals are around yeah, the airport? Yeah, fantastic National Geographic variety of animals that you get in <laughs> NOTAMs, rhinos and foxes and all kinds of things that effectively are semi-interesting maybe in passing, but there's nothing you can do about it. Either you're clear to land or you're not. And it, it, this is part of what's clogging up the system. So the non-critical stuff is probably 95% of what's in these no times. The critical stuff is between 1% and 5%. So when, if you're operating a flight, if you're the pilot or, or co-pilot or, or whomever on a flight operating, let's say, LAX to JFK, when would you first see these notums? You'd first see them when you sit down at the table or in the in the you know at the crew room with the rest of the crew. So you'd meet the crew, sit down at a table, and look at the briefing package for the flight for the most part. And that's the first glance that you're going to get at these. A lot of pilots will brief themselves on the way to the airport, maybe at the you know for the weather, who's operating the flight with them. But pre-briefing the NOTAMs is is kind of an impossibility because of the number of them. So your group is currently pushing for a revision to the NOTAM system to make them, I guess, bring the critical information up to the surface, but also revise how they're written to make them a bit more plain language? That's part of it. I mean, I guess, you know, this is something that we're discussing in what do we do? Do we look for a completely new system because of how flawed the existing one is? Or do we try like a piecemeal approach to fixing it? That's one of the questions in, in the work that we're doing. But making that decision is kind of where we're at at the moment in, in this group that we formed. And we're kind of working through that. So what are some of the, I mean, beyond the verbose language and, and the often, you know, kind of uh, burying the lead, so to speak, as far as, you know, I, I don't care that there are, you know, migratory birds 200 miles from the runway. And, and I also don't care that there's a crane set up 14 miles from the end of the runway when I will either be at 10,000 feet or, or 6,000 feet and the crane's 200 feet high. The word crane appears 18 times in the JFK Notum listing right now, by the way. Yeah. Have a look at San Francisco. Count those. <laughs> it's far worse. So beyond that, what's missing right now? Is there critical information that isn't included in the system? Or is it just that the information's there, but you have to read through, you know, who knows how many pages to get to what you need to know? Yeah, I think the easiest way, I mean, it's a complex problem in some respects. We've been trying to solve it for 55 years. Um, you know, the very first hint of like changing the NOTAM system was in 1964 um, when the FAA promised us that only critical stuff would be in the system. And, you know, since then it hasn't happened. So why is that? There's 5, 10, 15 things that are wrong with the system as it exists. But, you know, the image to visualize is a pilot on a longer haul flight will get 100 pages of a briefing package. And the message really is, here's a haystack there may or may not be a needle in it. And so if you think of it in that respect, it's, it, it's quite possible that you get 100 pages of briefing and there's nothing, nothing in that 
that's relevant to your flight today. Entirely possible. Um, so when I say there are 90 items listed for JFK, that's only considering the destination airport. That's not the departing airport that has nothing to do with the route of flight to that airport. That's 90 items just for that one airport. That's correct. Exactly. And and so so if you're flying, say you're you know you're arriving at JFK, but you're departing, let's say Dubai. So you're an Emirates flight from Dubai to JFK. You're going to have notams for for Dubai, and then you're going to also want to check notams for whatever your diversion airports are. Exactly. Exactly. So and so that I mean I can only and if you're an A380, you can only go so many places, and they're all probably pretty busy airports. So I can only imagine how many things you're reading through. And and I've read through more, at this point, more notams than I, I care to remember at, at, at this point, just you know, trying to learn the system and trying to understand and things like that. And one of the things that I find so maddening is that the abbreviations Ugh, aren't consistent. Awful. And that seems like a huge problem when, when you're trying to, to have something that's supposed to be standardized, but it's not. Well, imagine how long these things would be if they actually used all the letters in the word closed. Instead, they do CLSD instead of C-L-O-S-E-D. But I have heard that that's because these things used to be like over telex back in the day and every character was basically pennies and, and cents adding up and they just never never changed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, fun fact, you know, the, the language and the format of the NOTAM system is, it's not based on, it is the telegraphic alphabet from 1924. This is why every NOTAM is written in uppercase. It's, there's a limited character set. Huge part of the problem is actually looking at it and kind of parsing it as a human being. We're not designed to read vast quantities of that stuff. I mean, a hundred pages of abbreviations in uppercase. So that's a big part of the issue. And, you know, in 1963, everything that we use today uses ASCII, the American Standard uh, Character Interface. And that's when the world changed from using ITA2 to ASCII. And aviation said, no, thanks, we're good. <laughs> this isn't the first time that, that aviation has kind of lagged behind the rest of the world in in certain things. You know, this 1963-1964 is kind of the first time that that changes got put into place. Have there been any changes since then? Or was this a, we're going to change everything, we're going to make it better, and then nothing happened? Basically, I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> w w we, we didn't change in 1963, which is the joke, you know. We stayed with ITA2 when everybody else went to ASCII. So, you know, a lot of pilots don't even know that. But if you're looking at your briefing package and you're wondering, why is it in uppercase? That, that's, you know, when somebody types on the internet now in a forum in uppercase, you, you get an immediate onslaught of uh, caps lock memes. But this is what we have to read in the cockpit every day. And long and short of it is it hasn't changed in any shape or form. The only thing it has done is got worse. There's more of them. We've gone from 500,000 NOTAMs issued in total worldwide in 2007 this year, it's 2 million. So they've quadrupled in the space of 12 years. And aviation is not unique in this respect where ancient protocols and restrictions hampered future improvement. Up until a couple of years ago, the National Weather Service here in the US was only able to issue weather alerts in uppercase because of system constraints. And they only recently fixed that, I think, last year or the year before. Somehow, aviation is even further behind that. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. To jump into the, you mentioned the quadrupling of, of 
the number of notams issued. Is that because is there more kind of covering bases here? Is it, you know, if we don't put this in and then something happens, we'll be held accountable? Is it just a I don't understand why you would issue four times the the number of notams than than just ten years ago. Great question, very interesting. The answer is probably yes. I don't know. It's it 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 is a kind of you know it probably take a while to unpack exactly why that is. But I would say the primary reason is that that fear of if we don't stick this into the system, then if something happens, we'll get sued. And the reality is that that's probably not true. It's a fear, but it's probably not based on any real fact. Um, you know, we get a lot of bird notams. Bird notams are my absolute favorite. They are magical things. They are so funny to read. So instead of just saying like we have birds in the vicinity of the airport, which is a de facto situation anyhow, you know, birds like long grass, airports have long grass, the space between runways has lots of it. So you're going to get birds. Nothing you can do about it. They're going to go into your airplane. They're going to go into your airplane. But yet we have pages and pages of specifics on on the types of the birds. And the best one is birds of Bangkok. There's an incredibly specific list of the types of birds. I'll read you a few just for fun, right? This, please, please. This is brilliant. This is the latest issue from June. And it, again, it's in every pilot going into, into Bangkok will get this. Types of birds in the vicinity of the air, aerodrome. Painted stork, gray heron, black-headed ibis, a purple heron, the lesser whistling duck, the black-crowned night heron, <laughs> great egret, intermediate ridiculous. egret, cattle egret, little egret, the barn owl. Etc. And somewhere right under that, it's going to tell you the runway is closed. Right, exactly, exactly. So lots of specifics on all of this type of stuff. And it's not just birds, it's when they're cutting the grass. It's a fence two miles from the airport that's four feet high. It's, you know, endless examples of stuff that is not relevant and yet is in there. And therefore, we get what we had in San Francisco, the Air Canada 759 incident back in 2017. Critical information is missed. And suddenly it's not funny anymore. We, we had what would have been the worst crash in U.S. history. The pilots missed the NOTAM. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you read my mind. There was a major article published just uh, this week about the Air Canada incident. And both pilots, they, they said they had seen it at some point in the NOTAM, but it wasn't on top of their mind because it was just buried in minutia and hundreds and hundreds of lines of other just crap. Exactly. No times aren't always as dramatic and, and headline news as that, but it is very fair to say the direct cause attributed by the NTSB to that incident was no times. It wasn't a contributing factor. It was the factor. And sure, there was other issues on that flight. You know, the pilots were tired and, and some maybe questionable things about the operation, but the direct cause was no times. And that was one second, 14 feet in the go round. That was the distance between the bottom of Air Canada and the top of the Philippines 747 on, on the taxiway. Uh, it, it doesn't get any closer. It would have been the worst crash in US history. So who is responsible for making decisions that, that are binding on this system? I, I know your I know ops group is, is working on coming up with solutions, but say you come up with, you know, this is what we want to do. Who do you go to to say, okay, here's our solution? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's also part of why it's been so difficult to solve. There really isn't any one authority that you can attribute responsibility to. It, it's global. Each state is responsible essentially for their own NOTAM system. ICAO sits on top of that. 
But the, the thing is that it's, it is such a complex problem to solve that you don't solve it, I believe, by you know, attributing responsibility to somebody and saying, hey, uh, you guys need to solve this. And, and this is kind of why we formed the NOTAM team, because what I wanted to do was, in writing the article that I wrote, I wanted to find people who would say, I'll take responsibility for being part of the solution. I'll put my hand up and say, hey, I want to do something about it. You know, and, and personally for me as well, I, I've, I've had fun for a year or two. We've had fun in Ops Group, and there's a lot of fun to be had with NOTAMs. You know, we've had some great ideas, and we had the, the worst NOTAM contest, and we wrote a book, and we made a game, and did all kinds of stuff. But in the end, yeah, at a certain point, you kind of go, okay, I will step up and take responsibility. So I looked for who else is in. Um, we found 200 people, mostly pilots and dispatchers, to say, yeah, I'll jump in, and I will take responsibility for helping to drive the solution. And so have you reached any conclusions or are you working towards various schools of thought or, or what's happening? So what's happening is we're actually only a month into it. The, 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 the first article I wrote on NOTAMS was in 2017, but the, the one that really kind of got traction again this year was back in the June, start of July. So we're really only a month into it. But what we've done is get everybody together in one place, thanks to the wonders of the internet. We have great collaboration tools. And now the question is, what are we doing? What are we working on? And we've come to the point of figuring out that creating a beautiful new system that feels really good to use, that does the job wonderfully well, is the thing to work on. So how do we solve it? And for us, the key is uh, you know, bringing, to, bringing outside support into the problem. So not just aviation people, but critical thinkers, designers, creators of beautiful information. And people outside aviation that have solved similar problems, you know, we have people from the nuclear industry, we have a whole bunch of different fields. And so not being restricted by anything just to create something wonderful, that's where we're at right now. It sounds like a monumental task, but one that would be extremely rewarding and and, and I think welcomed by everyone in the aviation community. It's one of those things where outside aviation, it seems like this obscure, you know, text messaging whatever, but is absolutely critical to the safe operation of flights. Exactly. It has an incredibly important function. If any, you know, if you get onto an airplane, we're all passengers at some point. Don't you want the pilot to know more than you about the route of flight and the destination? Don't you want them to know everything they should know? Of course you do. Um, and yet in the technology, you get on the airplane, you turn right, sit down and you get into WhatsApp and you're choosing emojis and using the latest technology and up in the cockpit, we're using 1924 character set on dot matrix paper in abbreviations and codes that half of them don't understand, myself included. It's not a safe setup. <laughs> I mean, when you put it like that, it's in pretty stark terms. It is. But in thinking about it, I think it's important to think of it as a simple problem rather than a big complex problem in, in trying to solve it. And you know, I was thinking earlier about Flight Radar 24 and the type of problems that Flight Radar 24 has solved. And, you know, if you go back 25 years and think about what the information is that Flight Radar 24 is, is presenting, if you go back 25 years, the only thing we had was an audio version of what you do, perhaps, a position report at 15 West or 20 West. And if you listen to it, maybe on HF, um, it's the same information, the same data that Flight Radar 24 has, but it's not intuitive. We don't respond well to you know, 52 North 15 West at 1202370, 52 North 20 West 1224. It doesn't engage us as humans. Um, the written version of that is not much better. You look at a bunch of coordinates on a piece of paper, you can't really make sense of it. 
And fast forward to what FlightRadar24 is, it's beautiful information. It's a joy to look at. It's presented wonderfully. You, you get what it is straight away. If you're looking at a chunk of airspace, you're seeing all the airplanes and whatever information you need is, is there. And, you know, these are some of the places that we're actually looking at for answers because it's been done. We have the tools. So we're just trying to apply that to no times, you know. So what else is, is Ops Group working on, tasking itself with? I mean, you've got a large collection of, of folks who work in a variety of positions within the industry. What else are you, are you folks doing? Yeah, good question. I think, you know, NOTAMs are part of a wider aviation information problem. They're one aspect of it. And the greater thing that we're working on is how do we get information to pilots so that they know the latest safety issues, the latest risk for their flight, the latest procedural changes, so that they can operate that flight entirely safely. And how do we do the NOTS group? Well, we're, as you said, we're a village, five and a half thousand of us, um, mostly pilots and dispatchers. And the concept is when one person knows everybody knows. So what we do as the ops group team is we curate the information that's coming into us and engage the members to provide that so that when critical stuff pops up, we know about it relatively quickly. And then we figure out how do we get the message out to the community best so that they know what's happening. It's very challenging. The rate of change in aviation is exponential now. North Atlantic is one example of how quickly things change, how, how, how large the volume of change is. It's very, very hard as a pilot to stay up to date with stuff. And so we get that as a big group and we go, okay, what are we doing about it? And, and that's, that's our main mission. So if I'm you know, in aviation and I want to join Ops Group, or if I'm interested in aviation and I want to read more about what you're putting out there or, or writing and things like that, how, how can we find you and read more? So the Ops Group website is ops.group. G-R-O-U-P, ops.group. It's pretty simple. And if anybody wants to talk to me directly, including about the NOTAM issue, uh, it's just mark at ops.group, M-A-R-K. And yeah, love hearing from people, love getting new ideas. So welcome any, any conversation. Mark Z, the founder of Ops Group, banishing the scourge of NOTAMs one line at a time. Thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you. So now we know everything there is to know about NOTAMs, and it seems even more ridiculous than it did before. I look forward to uh, a day when these things are, you know, readable by human beings in some way that's actually helpful. <laughs> you, have, you have to be some sort of special machine to read them, it's true. Yeah. I mean, I doubt this stuff is even machine readable at this point, so you can't even build a bot to condense these things out and spit out something coherent. Um, but yeah, that, this has got to change. So elsewhere in the news, Air Tanzania took delivery of a couple A220s not too long ago, but it got one impounded in South Africa. Whoops. By no fault of its own, by the way. This isn't like they took a delivery of a new aircraft and two weeks later couldn't pay for it. It's totally unrelated to the airline, which is kind of what's so funny. Yeah, I mean, it, they're trying their best but hopefully they get it back well, soon. What happened here was I did some digging and found an article from South Africa. And apparently back in the I think the 80s or 90s, Tanzania, did I pronounce that right? 
Tanzania, I believe is how I pronounced it, but who knows who's right. Sorry about that. Tanzania nationalized some very large farm. Um, So this farmer, he lost to the the country his entire many, many acre farm, all his support vehicles and all that. And um, he's basically botching these details, but decades later, he's trying to get $33 million back from the government or something like that. And somehow ended up suing in South Africa, who impounded the aircraft, which is worth substantially more than $33 million. But the, the whole thing is just very, very strange. But oddly, just it's completely unrelated to the airline, but is super high visibility and people take notice. So it's, it's almost like it was calculated to make the most impact. I mean, I don't understand how the legalese of, of how this worked, but – Bravo. Freaking brilliant. <laughs> Other strange happenings. An Emirates A380 went in for an A-check and now needs a nose lift. Yeah, or uh, might also become beer cans. I, I mean, I doubt that, but you never know. So basically, it was up on jacks during a, a maintenance visit, and the nose jack failed, and it failed into the ground. I feel like that's got to be really rare. Because I feel like we hear about it every time it happens, and you don't hear about it very often. Yeah. Every every once in a while, you hear about some you know somebody tilting back, right, due to like uh, an improper cargo loading or something, right. Or right, if you're running a seven three seven nine hundred, people just got off the plane the wrong way, and the plane is stupid and unbalanced. Well, that's what that pulls for in the in the back. Sure, stick it under the tail. Sure. Anyway. So you have some exciting news about old airlines that are making a comeback. Oh, yes. So are you ready for the new, 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 new Eastern Airlines? I have never been more ready for anything in my entire life. Well, good news because they're buying all the planes and hubbing up at JFK. Eastern is now like it was dynamic and then who bought them? Uh, Swift Air brought, bought the Eastern branding and now they're trying to do all these ridiculous routes to weird uh, inner Chinese cities with something like 4767s and 777s hubbed out of JFK um, and, and some northern South America cities. None of this makes any sense. You can't hub a new airline at JFK because there is simply no room for that. We will not stand I mean, for it. When I think of JFK, I think of severely underutilized. Right. Yeah. Why not? There are no gates available at any normal hours of any normal days of the week at JFK. So unless they feel like banking all their flights at 2 a.m. and 5 a.m., it's just not going to work. There's no no, forget about slot restrictions. There are simply no gates available for anyone. Just ask uh, Norwegian anytime it tries operating the HiFly A380. Just ask how well that goes. It doesn't. So yeah, the new, 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 new Eastern is back. And alongside that, Midwest Express is kind of back, sort of, not really. Um, I mean, they printed stickers. Yeah. So there's a lot of nostalgia out there with Midwest Express. People really love their brand. And apparently they're kind of sort of back, but it seems to me like it's just Elite Airways in disguise. Let's see. It announced uh, Cincinnati, Grand Rapids, and Omaha as its first destinations because those strike me as super 
super important business destinations, but whatever, maybe they can find a niche. But the, these are just, oh, these are out of Milwaukee, by the way. But the, these are just Elite Airways CRJ 700 with some Midwest Express stickers on it. And they did announce for those who flew Midwest back in the day that yes, there will be freshly baked cookies. But I'm pretty sure that the Elite Airways CRJ 700s don't have an oven on board. I, I would be willing to bet on the fact that they do not. So unless the flight attendants are planning on using an easy bake oven to heat up those cookies, don't get your hopes up. Bleed air. Ooh. Bleed air cookies. Ooh. Yeah, that's going to be hard pass from me. That that doesn't sound delicious, does it? No. So we'll, we'll see what – the Eastern thing, I – the Midwest Express, I, don't thing, I get that. Understand like there's, there's why probably Eastern a keeps coming back from the grave. Just to stop it. It's not like the kind of brand that has like significant name recognition anymore, or, or nostalgia, or anything. It's not Pan Am. It's not TWA. I mean, it's Eastern. Why? why? I don't get it. I think it would be truly amazing if they tried to do this out of JFK with a couple of you know L ten elevens. Yeah, that I mean, would be a story I, I worth would sign up for that, but I, I don't know where they think they're going to get dozens and dozens of, of 7.6s and 777s, and I don't see it as any different than back in the day when Dynamic itself operated beat up old 762s and 3s to um, Northern South America. It just seems like it's they're trying that again with a different brand name. And, and you know, all the more power to them. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't see that. Enjoy your 3 a.m. departure happening. out of Terminal 1. There you go. If the price is so, right, people will do it. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Let's close the show with something we're going to be doing in between this episode and for next episode. Next week, uh, so, so this will come out on, on Friday, the 30th of August. So the following week, Jason and I are off to Dallas and Roswell as guests of American Airlines because we are participating in the final flights of the entire MD-80 fleet that American operates. Yes. So we will not be on the last flight. We will be on a non-revenue flight from DFW out to Roswell, where we will usher in the final flights. Right. So, so there's going to be – there are 26 aircraft left in the fleet. Two of them are owned by American Airlines and will be – shipped off. At least one of them is being donated to an aviation school. I, I, I don't know which school, and I'm not sure what the other one is going to be doing, but I, I think it's also going to be donated. And then the other 24 are going to make their way to Roswell on the 4th of September. And if you go to the blog next week, we'll have ton of information about schedules and and how to track all of these flights and and we'll make it really easy for everybody yeah and this um, isn't so the, the first time they're doing something board. like this remember they did what was it last year where they had their last batch of, of a, a whole bunch of aircraft going to roswell at the same time yeah this started in 2016 august of 2016 was the first time that they batched i think it was 20 total MD-80s, and that included some at the time that were the the very, very old ones, some of the initial MD-80s that they had taken delivery of. This batch is mostly MD-83s that TWA had taken and that American acquired as part of that merger uh, in 99? 
the, the merger happened to them. Most of the aircraft are from 98, 99. So they're, so, they're not, so in that's the what this grand is. scheme of things are not that old. American has A320s from US Airways that are substantially older than that. Sure. But I mean, I, I think it's more of a, an economics issue and, and there's a lot oh, going yeah. into there's, to why there's they're, no they're questioning the to, need to retire to them. It's just, right. just be careful in your assumptions that these, Oh, it's, it's not necessarily the age of the aircraft. Right. Yeah, yeah. There you there, go. There's so much more that goes into right. it. Right. The average age right now of uh, Americans MD-80 fleet is 21 years, according to planespotters.net. Average age of their 320s is only, it's 18.4. So it's right up there with it. So we are going to be a part of that. We'll be at DFW to see off the final revenue flight, and then we'll we're going to fly to to Roswell to welcome in the the flights. We're going to chat with some pilots who have flown the MD80s. We're going to chat with some people who are tasked with the responsibility to maintain the aircraft once they get to Roswell. It's going to be fun. Uh, so so looking forward to that, and that will be on the next episode of this podcast. So episode 66 will be mostly about our adventures in Roswell. So really looking forward to that and and hope everybody joins us. And so we'll sign off for now and probably start packing, I think. So we'll go from there. Turns out American has one single MD-82 left in its fleet. The rest are all 83s. And there's a 10-year, a decade time span between those two batches. So Right. MD-82 is the one of the American-owned ones. So that'll be sent off for, for museum or, or poking and prodding by uh, aviation mechanic students. Uh, so that, that'll be neat. This has been episode 65 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.